Hello, welcome to this episode of Unfinished, Unpublished. In this programme, I ask my guests to search their bottom drawers and the abandoned corners of their laptops to rediscover secret and incomplete schemes. I talk to artists, writers and musicians about the projects that they never finished or, until now, that they never made public. I'm interested in the value of unfinished art and of doing creative work for fun or for personal satisfaction. If you have an unfinished or unpublished project you'd like to talk about, you can email me, M. Anderson, on unfinished.unpublished at gmail.com. My guest today is Mary McGraw. She is a writer. This year, she was shortlisted for the Mogford Prize for Food and Drink Writing. It was judged by Stephen Fry and Prue Leith. Mary's recognition in the prize was for her short story entitled Sup, which she reads during this programme. She also gives her tips on how to persevere with writing despite setbacks, the benefits of writing for or towards an audience, and the three things that she wants readers to take from her work. Mary is also an extremely good cook, and quite excitingly I think, she describes on this programme for the first time her ideas for a new book which combines her love of cooking with her love of writing. It's a mixture of recipes and stories, and I know that I'd certainly be very keen to read it. Essentially, no one listens, so we're fine. We can say what we like. Yeah, yeah. It's quite relaxing in a way. It's just a chat then, isn't it? Essentially. So when I'm reading, you'll just be able to go off and do as you like. <laughs> well, I could, but, you know, then I'd miss the end and that'd be awkward. <laughs> My guest today is Mary McGrath. Mary was raised on a small farm in Southern Ireland. She's part of a traditional Catholic family and is one of six children. She wrote her first story when she was very little, approximately just six years old. She even made a little book out of it, complete with illustrations. As an adult, she took up a career in teaching. She is taught in Sudan, Kenya, Spain and Botswana, as well as in different parts of England. She retired two years ago and decided to make writing a key part of her free time. The first thing she wrote was a non-fiction memoir piece, and she has also written about six short stories. She says she's in the painful stages of the next one, And if that weren't enough, she also has plans for a new project that excites her, but that she claims may never amount to anything. What Mary very modestly didn't say in the biography that she sent me is that early this year, she was a runner up in the Mogford Prize for food and drink writing. The judges this year were none other than Stephen Fry and Prue Leith. So congratulations on the Mogford Mary, as well as on all the other writing that you've been doing and a very warm welcome to the programme. Thank you, Emily. Now, I know that this programme is focused on unfinished work, um, but in a bit of a twist, your story, Sup, as I say, is not only finished, but also published, because you were a runner-up in the Mogwood Prize. So I just wanted to ask you how it felt to get that kind of recognition. Well, to be quite honest, Emily, it was amazing. Well, it was validation, really, because you always have doubts about yourself as a writer. Well, I certainly do. And because teaching myself to write, really, even though I've been a teacher of English for a million years. I'm I'm just learning as I go along. And I had submitted to the Montford Prize the first year of of my retirement, and nothing came of that, unsurprisingly. And then when I submitted this one, to be long-listed was wonderful. I mean, incredible for me. And then to be shortlisted, to be one of four, the final four was just wonderful and that that just gave me a huge boost of confidence so that sense of validation then was all the sweeter for having to work to finish the story are you someone that has a lot of false starts when writing or is the process 
smoother than that? I think the ideas come to me very easily, just generally. Uh, sometimes it's just a little fragment of memory, you know, my own life, perhaps some small thing or something I've seen, um, something I've heard. It can be a tiny, tiny thing. I, I don't have a shortage of ideas. And then as I write them, I'm asking myself, well, what is this story actually about? And if, if it's really <laughs> nebulous, you know, I might abandon, but I, I have a notebook and a set of files of stuff that I don't throw away, I, I might come back to. So I don't know if there are false starts exactly, but I have to encourage myself and I, I have to read them with neutral eyes, really, and just try to be very, very objective and decide if it's workable or not. So I have plenty of unfinished stuff, but I'm not going to cast them aside either. And what helps you with making those kinds of decisions? Do you ever get other people to read it, for example? Or is it a question of, like you say, just trying to be as objective as you can by yourself? Um, I have two readers. <laughs> I have um, a very helpful husband who reads very critically in a good way. I mean, I ask for that. He's encouraging. He's very honest. He'll read it with objective eyes. And then I've got a very dear friend and she will find a space of time to read them, you know, to properly read and give the story or whatever I send her um, the attention. And she gives me a lot of very positive feedback, which is wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> she, she could give me more negative, really. Um, those are my two readers, really. And then I do submit to different places with some of my, my writing. And do you ever get feedback to the, from the places that you submit to? No. No, okay. even even the Mogford, it was just, you've been long-listed, well done. You've been short-listed, well done. And I have I have craved strangers to read my work. You know, I've craved that feeling of just someone who doesn't know me at all to, to read and, and to give me a response. That's what you really want. Well, I certainly want that. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, obviously the premise of the programme is partly to do with work that isn't published. And I think some people are almost satisfied with just writing something for themselves. And actually, speaking of, of audiences, I suppose, you mentioned in the email you sent me that the first thing you wrote after retiring was a memoir piece. And you had some quite specific sources of motivation for that, including specific readership. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? I mean, that was... Um... It was just very clear to me that I wanted to do it. And it was just for my two adult children. And because I'm Irish and they've been raised in England and they knew my father but don't remember him very well, I just felt they were missing out a whole chunk of their heritage, really, by not knowing him or the Irish side and my upbringing on a farm. When he died, I, I attempted to write a poem it, that was just, it wasn't a decision. It was just a, an instinct. Mm. For 10 years, I couldn't write that poem. I, I drafted something, but I couldn't ever say what I wanted to say. And then when I retired, the idea of different memories I had of him and me, just my relationship with him as a child up to about the age of 10, I had so many memories and they were all really good. They were all really positive things and you could see the kind of man he was and kind of how I became who I am. So I wrote a piece for my son and my daughter and I, I called it A Part of You mm. because it is really. And it, it was a series of vignettes really. So things around the farm, things he did that really shaped me. And they're just like little standalone vignettes and I made it into um, a little manuscript really tied with a ribbon and I gave it to them at Christmas not this Christmas yeah one or two Christmases ago and I was just very pleased to have done that I'm not saying it's phenomenal writing or anything but I took care with it and it meant a great deal to me I was I was glad to have done it that's such a wonderful gift to give them I think I was really interested in what you said then about how you tried to write a poem mm. about your father for 10 years and then mm. since retiring you then did the memoir piece that you said was kind of a series of vignettes. You said that you struggled to say exactly what you wanted to in the poem. Mm. Was there something that changed 
that allowed you to write about him in a way that you were more satisfied with after you retired? Probably the passage of time. Yeah. And I think I was trying to put too much into the poem. Mm. Um, and it was too soon as well. <laughs> so sure. this, I was able to cover a lot more ground. It was it was honouring him, but I, the, the passage of time, I had that distance so I could control it more. Yeah. And is the memoir something that you'd ever consider sharing more wild, more widely, or would that take away, I guess, I don't know, maybe that would take away from the specialness of it? No, no. Um, the, the, my two readers have read it, and in fact, I sent a copy to each of my siblings because I thought, you know, they will have their memories of him. But these are mine, and there was plenty there about cattle and the farm and different, just different things, like funny things as well. There was lots of things. It's not like sentimental. There was one vignette about when the Pope came to Ireland when I was like a university student and Ireland was in a frenzy at the time and the, the impact that had on him. <clears throat> I wrote a little piece about that. No, I haven't a, an issue about sharing it as such, but I would need to kind of smarten it up a bit as well because <laughs> it was the first piece I wrote. And what did your readers think of it? I didn't get a great deal of feedback from the siblings. Both my son and daughter, they, they liked it. I mentioned in the introduction that you're currently working on your next short story uh-huh. and also a project, another project that you said you're very excited about. And just thinking about this thing of sharing or not sharing, I think a lot of writers have a really understandable instinct not to talk about in any mm. detail things mm. that they're still working on. Is that something that you share? It, it changes, Emily. Sometimes it's, um, I'm excited um, so it's a new idea and I maybe dash off 800 words or something and then I'm buzzing with that and be excited. And then sometimes I'll keep it to myself much longer until I have, you know, really good skeleton. I suppose a lot of it is to do with wondering if it's good enough or something, I, I guess. Oh, yeah. I certainly get so much despair. I think most people do cry over it and, you know, I'm no good. And <laughs> all the doubt and, you know, that's pretty endless, really. Or not pinning down what it is you're trying to achieve and how do you overcome that just keep on plugging (laughs) (laughs) just keep on I mean my husband John he always says well you do keep on plugging you you just Mm. don't let it go you just keep going back to it and he seems to find that something to admire I just see it as yeah I I don't want to be bested (laughs) by the thing I'm trying to do I, I want to win you know on the piece I'm writing you said there about plugging on with the writing to make sure that you best it. And one of the things I think that can be really difficult when working on any creative project is when to stop plugging away in the sense of when to stop fiddling with it or tinkering with it. Yeah. How do you know when your pieces actually are finished? I did think about that quite a bit. And I completely get the tinkering thing. Sometimes you just shifting a word around or a sentence around or various things like that. What I, what I do as my sort of final test is I read this, the entire story out loud to myself. Okay. And if there's a, there's a sort of little pulse, <laughs> I guess, a little pulse in your stomach or a little pulse somewhere and you just think, yeah, okay. And even if it's not top-notch or anything, it's, I say to myself, well, that's the best I can do. I mean, I wrote a story in lockdown and I laboured over it. I spent, I would say, three months overall and I've been thinking about it for years. But I was trying to imagine lives that I almost couldn't imagine. Probably the hardest thing I've written. And (laughs) it's not a particularly successful story. It's just quite (laughs) bleak. And my two readers, (laughs) they say, yeah, yeah. I don't think they love it, and I don't love it, but it was the hardest work, whereas if I go back to sub, it's probably the easiest thing I've ever okay. So it's just funny, you know, and then you come into the territory of, are you writing for just your own pleasure? Are you writing to be, you know, all literary, or, you know, why are you writing? 
So with that story that you said that it was really hard work and you think perhaps not that successful, how do you feel about that? Are you proud of it because it's done and you managed it? I'm very proud of it. Yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't confuse it with the amount of time I put into it because, you know, you read about novelists who, you know, abandon a novel, you know, three quarters of the way through and they just junk it. And I'm in awe of those kind of people. But I did work very hard on this story and... The things I dreamt up and the detail I imagined, I got, you know, as I say, a buzz from. Like, I really did get a buzz from some of the story. Mm. The story is just bleak throughout. There is no uplifting <laughs> factor. <laughs> and I know what I was trying to achieve. I was, I was going for a theme. I like to work to a theme. So I was going for a theme of futility. <laughs> I achieved that. <laughs> it was the theme of futility, really, the futility of life. So, yeah, I, I am proud of it. I like it. But I did ask a few more people beyond the two people to read it and they didn't like it. <laughs> so, but, I, you know, I, I won't give up on it. I'm not going to abandon it just because nobody liked it. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you like it, I think that's fine. I think that's great. <laughs> Um, just a quick one. You said that it's um, it was about futility. Was that lockdown related? No, it, no. It's just something I've always wanted to write. It's about someone I I knew, and I tried to imagine their life. Couldn't, so I made up obviously a lot of stuff, all all pointing towards ultimate futility. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Tuesday, everyone! It's not Tuesday, is it? It's Thursday. Happy Thursday, everyone! <laughs> You also said that you are working on an exciting new project. I wondered if you could give us a little bit of information about what that might be. Well, if it worked, Emily, it, it, in my head, it would be good. If, if I go back to Ireland and childhood, we always had, um, we didn't have very many books, but we had a cookbook in the house, and every Irish family, I think, did. A writer called Mary Lavin. She, I mean, she's an Irish author and she's, she's well-travelled and she was a cook. She wrote a story, a series of stories in this cookbook and then some recipes. And I, no pun intended, but I devoured those stories as a child and just constantly read them. I like to cook. I you know, really like to cook. And I have this idea of using some of my, my stories as they stand, like I have an array of stories and then writing some new ones. And I'm thinking of collating a set of recipes, my recipes, for different things, but they would be themed. I've not said this to anyone before. They would be theme-linked to my stories. I think that's a brilliant idea. Thank you. That's what I mean by I'm excited by it. And to go back to SUP, SUP would fit in there. Some of the recipes, some of the dishes from mentioned in that story could be some recipes. And I'm halfway through... Mixed in is a children's story. I'm just playing. It's just a playful story. And, you know, I have, a, I have an array of stories I could already use and then I could write some more and attach recipes to them. And I think I, in my head I can see it. Like I, I really can see that book. <laughs> I would definitely buy that. Thank you. I still think it would make a really good Christmas present. Yes, it really would. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's the plan. And, I mean, it's it's – one percent underway but it's it's kind of one of those things you can relax back to do you know what I mean like so if you're working really hard on a hard piece I was veer off to that project for relaxation um have you read oh, I think it's called Heartburn by Nora Ephron yes yes that's kind of a slightly similar thing she includes lots of and that worked really well yeah yeah but mine would be more I mean my layout would be very different and my tone would be different but yeah yeah okay so you've mentioned SUP there and you've actually brought us quite nicely to the subject of SUP and to food writing mm. um you've been kind enough to say that you're willing to read it all for us today but before you do that could you just give us a little bit of an overview about what happens or what you were dealing with in the story the story is about a teacher who's had a long career in teaching teaching English it is not autobiographical. <laughs> and she, Miss Jessup, she's reaching a stage where she would like a different life. And that's sort of what the story deals with. I don't want to, to spoil it in any other way. Great. OK, well, when you're ready, then, please go ahead.
Right, here we are with sup. And I was so lucky that day. It's very unusual. A woodcock, a woodcock girls, and it came into my garden. I was so excited. It made me very happy. An error, she immediately realizes. She shared this detail from her distant past. They widen eyes at each other, seeing her story in a way she ought to have anticipated. Adolescences of smirks, barely concealed, her pupils choking on their smut. A poem about a roosting hawk, one she must teach to the 15-year-olds, lent itself, so she had imagined, to telling them her woodcock story. The image she projects onto the whiteboard of that long-billed bird was never going to win them back. As they file out, they mimic her words. Another class lines up. Just one of the incidents that prodded her heart towards a different life. Miss Jessop, 28 years a teacher, 13 years at St Mary's School for Girls, with years yet to serve. The only person in a room with 25 students who feels the text they are studying. Losing her touch, she is beginning to feel irrelevant. Another poem fails to hit the spot. She plays them, a different class, her recording of a Lawrence poem. Why is he in pyjamas, miss? I'd love to go to Sicily, me. He does go on, doesn't he? Why does he repeat himself? I'd throw a brick. I hate snakes. What's XB8? She perseveres, plays them a second listening, the enlarged text of Lawrence's poem in front of her pupils. Pair work, group work, none of it captivates them. They don't care, can't feel it. She had thought to share her experience of taming a robin that spring, how honoured she had been when it came to her hand, but does a mental turnabout on that. They'd likely find smut in that story too. Miss Jessop must tackle a poem with her 12-year-old class. The Rossetti one, where evil goblins threaten sisters Laura and Lizzie. A poem where the maidens need to resist any temptation to eat goblin fruits. It would mean death if they succumbed. That lesson spirals, plummets, into an hour that goes far beyond restraint. Plump, unpecked cherries is the first phrase which sets off the girls. Then, she sucked until her lips were sore, causes convulsions of laughter. Why, hug me, kiss me, suck my juices, the class is in chaos. The finale, the line showing the loving sacrifice and ingenuity of one sister for the other, is lost on her girls. Her pupils only hear the incestuous and dirty ideas in the words. Miss Jessop must swap activities, shifting for the remainder of the hour to modern fiction. Dare she return to that text another day? There was the morning when Miss Jessop came through the school's double doors at the same time as a trio of 14-year-old girls. Sup! Don't! Shh! One whispered frantically. Then, again, sup! Intended for her ears, but spoken as if to each other. The tone, the mockery of her surname, was evident. Miss Jessop feels the end coming. She should draft a letter to St Mary's, requesting that they accept her decision. She mentally composes a slew of resignation missives, among them a formal conservative one and a garrulous unburdening one. Miss Jessop, who never takes time off, who is seldom ill. No one remembers any period of absence while she has been at St Mary's. Impossible now for her to ever take maternity leave. Could early retirement ever be a reality for her? The idea comes to her, settles, a comforting poodle drowsing by her ankles. The notice states, if you have the time, please come in. Nobody rushes when they are here. Because of the request, she sees the transformation in her guests. Some stay whole mornings, many lounging capacious chairs for entire afternoons. Sometimes there is conversation. Often there is only the silence of her garden. Sylvia pulls the strings. 
her home, her decisions. Unless you knew the town intimately, its twisting side lanes, its tiny chapels, the now filled and abandoned cemetery, you would miss Sylvia Jessop's house, and you might never come upon her rectangle of garden. Tourists exploring the chapel listed in their guidebooks, gazing and pointing at that fine example of 14th century stained glass, might proceed through the overgrown tangle of ivied headstones. They might see maroon hollyhocks peer at them over an ancient stone wall, or pick up the scent of summer roses displaying themselves at eye level. Here they would find sup, Sylvia's sign, if they were lucky, and her entreaty. Manny entered, having already gone a little off the recommended path. They never regretted it. Some wondered afterwards if they had dreamt it, sup and the shy woman with the generosity of a delta. You could never guarantee her garden cafe being open. No website existed. No opening hours were available to the locals or the wider world. It was simple. If you found her gate ajar and her notice before your eyes, you should grab the opportunity. Even with the word of mouth popularity she achieved, Sylvia opened her gates to visitors on her terms. Tomorrow, her gate might be closed and you could hunger for a glimpse or a taste and that hunger could not be satisfied. In Sylvia's world, she could open her garden from dawn to dusk or mere half days, a random hour even. The weather or how busy she was seemed to determine opening times. Spring and summer were the open seasons though Sylvia was tempted to run on into autumn when the mellow fruitfulness was everywhere. She simply loved to share it. Locals in the town, once they knew of Sylvia's ways, grappled with their natures to share her magic or keep her as their own. They usually shared. Sylvia's had it all. Her vegetables, rows of all the greens you could name. There was her chicken coop, the home to five feathered friends. As Sylvia worked outside, so did they, foraging and scratching, mumbling quietly together. Fruit bushes, her orchard of quince, apple, plum and pear, all unpecked, unblemished, tenderly tended. Miss Jessop, now Sylvia, intermittent proprietor of sup, could do as she pleased. Sylvia asked only five questions of her guests. She believed she got the measure of a visitor in a glance or from a few words. Are you hungry? On a scale of one to five, how hungry? Have you a sweet tooth? Are you more of a savoury type? Is there anything I need to worry about regarding your health? Sop had no menu. That was part of the charm. She made pancakes. There was nettle soup, pea soup. She baked wholemeal soda bread, shared her compulsive white bread. There were cheese scones, herb scones, biscuits, dandelion salads, gooseberry pie, near gibbous omelettes, courgette and tomato dumplings, pickles that piqued curiosity. There was whatever Sylvia felt like cooking, whatever she had a plenitude of, whichever dish she felt her visitors needed. She employed nobody, as self-sufficient as a voyager. Intolerances unable to be catered for here. You may need to go elsewhere. People took her sign in the spirit it was written. That first March day when Sylvia opened her gate, a lone tourist slipped in. The woman had stayed over three hours, dozing among cushions for half of that time. She devoured the baked pancakes, for Sylvia had rolled creamy cheese nettle-top spring onion fillings into her dish. The Canadian woman had eaten hungrily, drunk a litre of green tea and promptly fallen asleep. She had swathed her sated body in a merino throw, intended to keep off the March breeze. Sylvia worked nearby, planting and staking in her borders. She would slip into her home, working from that inner timer she had to check on her cakes and casserole. The Canadians slept on. 
Her comment in Sylvia's visitor book read, I wandered into a piece of heaven today. Sup is a treasure. I am restored. Sylvia knew she wanted this life. They came, the elderly, the lonely, the lovers, those footloose, the curious, the introverted, the audacious. They left, somehow, other, soothed, informed, realigned. Time spent at SUP did that. Sylvie offered no menu, nor any price list. All were guests who passed through. She served what she had, or what she felt would suit the day, the mood, their need. You might visit a friend, you wouldn't specify what you wished to eat. So it was here. Those who left behind a note, either in thanks or as payment, did so unasked. Nothing was expected of them. Almost everybody left some form of thanks. Sylvia was again thrilled by the July morning. Her gate had been open before dawn. She reveled in the light, the dewdrops, the dawn chorus, gathering sweet peas. Strawberries nestled in their straw beds. She disturbed them to gather just enough for the compote she would later make. And there they stood. You're a cafe, a tea place? Dad, there's a sign, it is. I wanted to check if you're open at this time. A gaunt, exhausted-looking man in jeans, which hung on his hip bones, swayed in front of her. His crumpled tartan shirt was surely too heavy for the heat of the morning. The sullen-seeming girl, hair deliberately hiding her face, could only be nine years old, if that... Sylvia thought. She smiled, assuring them they were right, and guided them to a table. They sank into the welcoming arms of her chair. He asked for hot sweet drinks, savoury food to follow. The girl appeared at Sylvia's elbow, asking if she could help. And in the process of pouring two hot chocolates into gigantic mugs, letting the girl choose the crockery, Sylvia learned something about them. School was over for the long summer. Dad had no job, and they were hiking and hitchhiking around the area, camping in free places. Mum was dead just a few years. He was all right, but it got boring being with Dad day and night. They couldn't carry much and were living a life she wouldn't be able to tell her friends about in September. The girl hadn't spoken to anybody for a long time. When she carried their hot chocolate to the table, Evie lowered herself into the chair, drinking contentedly. Sylvia watched from her kitchen window. They were in the spot nearest to the roses, lavender and her beloved sweet peas. Pinks, lilacs and red flashed disgracefully behind their bent heads. She saw them sip, sip again, begin to uncoil. She saw them smile at something. She thought on about their food. They eyed not her, but the tray that she bore to their table. Empty mugs removed, Sylvia set before them, an array that brought ravenous looks from father and child. For Evie's meal, Sylvia chose a plate adorned with scenes from famous children's books. The girl instantly recognised the stories depicted. <laughs> Wait until you eat your food, Sylvia said. So much more to see on this plate. For the father, she had arranged appetizers on a pale green platter. They fell to eating. In their body clocks, it was probably lunchtime. With all of that hiking, a sizable meal was needed. Evie devoured an omelette filled with wilted spinach. She went on to handfuls of baby tomatoes, popping them like Smarties, while she loosened up in chat. All this Sylvia saw from her window as she worked on another round of food. For the father, there was a palmful of sautéed mushrooms, a morsel of hard cheese, potato cake, a chickpea fritter, sliced roasted beetroot, a poached egg, an oat cake. Today was the day that Sylvia produced her special purple flesh potatoes. The bucketful she had dug that morning, what better guest to surprise with these novelties? She served a bowlful, still in their skins, freshly boiled. 
Sylvia came and went, came and went. She scanned through her pantry, her vegetable and fruit baskets, seeking only to delight with her choices. As mid-morning established itself, father and daughter wandered hand in hand through the garden, following the paths, viewing the fruits of her labour. Evie gathered the new day's produce, cupping each like a butterfly, presenting them one by one to Sylvia, as if she had discovered the first ever egg. Another guest arrived at her gate. This one favoured sweetness, and so the chance came to ply Evie and Dad with more. The woman, a tourist, requested coffee and cake. Sylvia brought gooseberry muffins with sugar tops, then carrot and walnut cake. Father and daughter sat with the Norwegian woman, china plates passing between them as daintily as Victorian ladies. Laughter and chat carried through her open window long into the afternoon. The child slept on the grass, all her sullen barriers long tumbled. The father lay back, legs outstretched, dozing in his armchair. The Norwegian woman left. Sylvia found some notes, and her note. When the pair decided to leave, hitchhiking on to the next town, Sylvia told them of the guest's comment. Thank you for my time in sup, Sylvia. Meeting Martin and his daughter, Evie, was extra special. I am paying for their food as well as mine. I have had their best time. Tuzin tak, Tonje. The money left by Tonje was excessive, even for the amount all three had eaten. Sylvia slid a ten-pound note to Evie. For a summer treat. Rolling with the mood, feeling the vibe. This is what it's all about. Live and let live. Give to receive. Spread the love. It's not too much to ask. Miss Jessop counts the stack of papers in front of her. Counts again. Eight still to finish before morning. She picks one from the small pile and reads. The poet has a lot of similes and metaphors in her poem. An onion has layers and the onion symbolises a person and how layered they are. The other essays begin in similar ways. Half grasp points from online literature forums fed by panic pupils, all scooping from the same vat of cliché. Fresh or insightful, they were not. In time to hear news at 10, she has marked the 27 poetry responses and prepared the feedback lesson with the St Mary's girls. She must find the time to reteach that onion poem later in the term. Ready for her bed, as ready as she can ever be for the school day ahead, Miss Jessop steps onto the balcony of her flat. A breath of night air is needed, even as the smell from chip shops and fried chicken rises to her. Traffic lights flash the go-ahead, impede, slow the motorists below. She gazes across the city towards unknown fields. That garden gate, in a place she will never reach, remains close to her. That was really lovely. Thank you so much for that. Thank you, Emily. Oh, there's so much to say here. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think probably my favourite aspect of the story is the description of the garden cafe and the food that Sylvia makes there. I was really taken with the abundance and the deliciousness <laughs> that yeah. you capture. And this is possibly a difficult question to answer, but were there any techniques that you were using consciously there to create that kind of sense of paradise or was it kind of quite free and natural to write about that? I think the garden description was just no problem. The food description I spent time on but I wanted that sort of fantasy kind of without it appearing like a fantasy. I wanted you know anything was possible. The food didn't take long. The garden description didn't take long at all. And I, I could I could see it in my mind, you know, pretty easily, really. I tried hard with them. If you go back and read it, that you can see that it's a lot of maybe, possibly, could be, that there is nothing definite in that section. So when you see her at the start as a, a struggling teacher, I suppose, and when you see the end, then the middle bit, once you check it, you realise it's 
not real. <laughs> I didn't have that ending initially. Like I, I the the background, if if you are interested, is a woodcock did come to our garden here, and it's very exciting. And we did buy a picture of a woodcock, and it's on the wall. And one day I was dusting the picture. I had retired, and I. I heard myself, I imagine myself saying to a class, even though this is not about me, but I imagine myself saying to a class, a woodcock came to my garden and how kids might you know, start elbowing each other and find it really funny and not finding it gorgeous or anything, just might find it, you know. And it made me laugh to think about a class reacting like that. It genuinely made me laugh in my own head. And then I just thought, I'm going to play with this. And I just started the story. But then I wanted to make it into feel good where you know she would open this kind of cafe and it just like things like Miss Jessup I just made up the name Miss Jessup for the hell of it really but then the sup thing I had fun writing that like where what children might say to mock her name that all was very easy and the poetry references they all just came really easily because I guess that's my experience I have taught those poems and then I found myself I think it's a very Irish thing where you sort of turn anything into almost a little morbid streak. <laughs> and I just found myself thinking about it's all a dream. And then I thought, I can't do that. I can't do it's all a dream sort of thing. But I, I wanted to. So I did actually want to ask you about the ending because mm. I, I found it interesting that you did go for, for want of a better phrase, for a sad ending. Could you say any more about the thinking behind that? I thought it added another layer and I thought it made, it just gave it a bit more depth, really. The feedback I had from my husband, he just said he felt anyone could identify with that. It's not like about being a teacher and that it can be anyone sort of maybe floundering in their career or feeling a sense of despair. And I thought that was interesting and that was helpful. I know that you said it's not autobiographical. But can I assume that it's inspired by your experience of, of teaching? Yeah, like where, where children might say things to, that they're not so interested in. It. You know, they will react as they did to the Lawrence poem with that sort of, oh, I'd love to go to Sicily. Why is he in pyjamas? Like deliberately missing the point almost or, or not wanting to engage with the poem. That rather, I mean, I certainly would have had reactions like that in class. And I have taught Goblin Market and I have taught Hawk Roosting and that part just wrote itself, really. And I was just kind of enjoying writing that, but exaggerating it, because at least by the time I retired, I I still love teaching. (laughs) You know, I would I'd hate anyone to think that I was worn down like that. So it's not autobiographical. I I really want to emphasize that. (laughs) And thinking about the teaching element again Sylvia seems to feel as though her pupils aren't learning or growing Mm. by the poems that she's trying to teach them and then that's contrasted of course with the way that she sets up a cafe and she does get the connection with people through the food that she makes them and I got thinking about all the different kinds of nourishment that feature in the story there's Mm. like intellectual nourishment physical nourishment Mm. kindness gardening socializing even non-parental nourishment it mentions that she's not going to take maternity leave and I wondered if that was something that you were thinking about when you were writing no I was thinking more about what would the fantasy be what would the dream be and I mean can you imagine running a place like that I mean I often because I have a sort of big lawn here and I, I often find myself thinking I'd love to have a little tea garden and just I mean I'm never going to do that but it would be lovely to to be generous. I mean, I think I'd, I wanted it to be a feel-good story initially, and I wanted it to be about generosity. Imagine finding a place like that. It would be just amazing. Towards the end of the story, there's a scene where we see Sylvia marking her huge stack of essays. And this includes some, shall we say, uninspiring <laughs> quotations from the essays themselves about the onion. First off, I thought it was really nice ironic touch to include the thing about the onion in a story that's so subtle in its treatment of food and what it can stand for but I also wanted to ask you I wanted to ask you your thoughts on the difficulties 
of encouraging students to write originally when they when they have such easy access to this kind of cliched online content? Yeah, I mean, I was blue in the face saying that to classes that if you're all churning out the same byte size or whatever the different sites are, if you're just churning out the same thing as every student up and down the country, the examiners are not going to find that interesting, the people marking your work. So try to trust yourself. But I think my marking, I would try and really praise and double tick things that were just fresh and theirs and quite often read out some of their work and say, look, this is amazing. This is such a a good response and this is just you. The food and drink theme, you've talked about your upcoming project, which is obviously very much based around that as well. Was that something that you were interested in anyway or was it something that you started thinking about specifically for entering the Mogford Prize? I think I heard about the Mogford Prize through the magazine Mislexia and I thought wow because it just tied in with retirement and I subscribed to that magazine and I I just saw this thing and I thought wow I could do this try it anyway not in a big-headed way and I wrote a story based around mushrooms I thought I was amazing doing this particular story, but, you know, someone killed someone because of serving them a mushroom dish deliberately. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. I was very pleased with myself um, and I submitted that and nothing came of it quite rightly. But that was a a story by generosity as well. Uh, And I guess I learned a lot from the process. I think I just felt like I'd don't want to write just privately, which has gone back to what we said earlier. I wanted to write towards something. So I, I think it's good to have something to submit to. Um, and the food stuff, yeah, I am interested in food. I'm relatively knowledgeable about some aspects of food. So it ticked a lot of boxes for me. So given that you were, you had that impulse to write to something or someone, you said there that quite rightly, <laughs> the Mogwood Prize first time round, you didn't get anywhere with. I mean, that's a very objective response, but presumably at the time, did you feel like a bit of a knockback, given that you thought you were quite proud of your story? I think when time passed and you, you, know, you look back on your pieces, you just think, what was I thinking? You kind of see all the flaws. I, mean, I can look back on the, the pieces about my father and I can see the, the writing flaws, like they're glaring, but the heart is there. And the, the mushroom story, it has a twist ending and all of that. But it, I was just flexing my muscles, really, you know, starting out. And that doesn't matter. That's fine. It's, I mean, my daughter has read one or two things since SUP and uh, she says I'm getting better. That's very heartening to hear. Maybe I'm just getting more disciplined or trying to craft my writing more. I think that's a really useful thing to to know, though, isn't it? Because I think certainly kind of having early conversations about doing this radio series with people, one of the things that comes up is that people's expectations of themselves are very Mm. high. So they'll start writing Mm. something or painting something or whatever, and it isn't quite right. And they kind of get disheartened at that stage and stop. It is so easy to be disheartened. So easy. I mean, all, all the, the writers that I read about, like I read a lot of short stories and I read a lot of, you know, stuff they say on Twitter and stuff. I mean, they just say, just make yourself do it. Just pick yourself up and start again. And if you get 50 words down, 80 words down, 800 words, just do it. There is a lot to be said for that. And when you're reading a particular author, do you ever find yourself kind of slipping a little bit into their style? No, I would hate to think that happened. I mean, I I guess over years and years, it seeps into you, particular things, you know, particular styles. And when I write now, and if I do share my work, I have kind of three things I, I want people to answer for me, really, is firstly, did the story hold your attention? Secondly, what did it leave you with? Like, even if you could say in a word, what does the story leave you with? You know, what feeling or what? And um, finally, does the story return to you? Does it pop back into your mind an hour or two or days afterwards? To me, I, I'm saying 
these are my sort of criteria that that's my measure of success if a story holds your attention and if it leaves you with something and it recurs in your brain or your heart then to me that's really successful would you think that's um, a fair measure I think that's an excellent measure and I think well for a couple of reasons I think it's very clear so in terms of what we were talking about earlier about knowing Mm. when to stop tinkering with stuff that's super useful but also it's interesting because it's extremely reader focused so it's all about kind of what the reader is getting from it which I suspect is not the case for all writers but I think it's really useful yeah that's a good point that really is a good point but um I, I think I do try and think more like I said that dear friend who I always pass my work on to and she sits and gives it time and gives me a lot of feedback. I often try to imagine her, Carly is her name. I imagine Carly when I'm writing and maybe I'm struggling and think, what would Carly make of this? And that's helpful to to visualise one person. Sylvia has almost a kind of Sherlock Holmes sort of superpower in being able to read people and to find out exactly what they most like to eat. Where did that come from? Is that something that you sort of experiment with in your own cooking? Because I know that you, you are a very good cook and, and you know a little bit about it. Thanks, Emily. I think um, maybe just being a parent or, you know, when people get hangry, like if you have the means, sometimes you can actually fix people, can't you, with food? I suppose I, I do try to do that sometimes just in normal life. Maybe I'll present something. I mean, it can be something as simple as cutting a sandwich into four triangles rather than <laughs> two, two rectangles. Or, I love it when people do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you just do, or you can, you know, you can arrange food artfully, even if it's the simplest thing, but you can do something with it or, you know, make faces on a slice of toast with, or what, do you know what I mean? Like you can do fun things. I mean, maybe it goes back to that. But it's it's a nice idea to try and read someone and just think, how would I fix them? And the, the idea that she's very instinctive and has a sort of talent, I suppose, for, for that. But because it's fantasy, you know, she, she's, she can hit the spot every single time. <laughs> mm-hmm.